I've told you before about the young woman who went to her pastor and she said, Pastor, I have a besetting sin and I need your help. She said to her pastor, she said, I come to church on Sunday and I can't help but thinking that I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation. And I know that I shouldn't think that, but I just can't help it. And I need you to help me with it. And the pastor looked on this young woman with compassion and she replied, Betsy, don't worry about it. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a horrible mistake. You know, we think so much more of ourselves than we should. Pride. And pride causes comparison. And friends, comparison causes division. Because pride says, I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation. I'm the person most concerned with holiness in this congregation. I'm the most gracious person in this congregation. I'm the most knowledgeable person in this congregation. And pride says, well, at least I'm more holy, gracious, or knowledgeable than him. Or than her. And Jesus looks at us and he goes, no, it's all just a horrible mistake. Two weeks ago, we heard Paul warn the church in Philippi to stand united. And in that section of Philippians, he was warning them to stand united from the forces without, from the forces from outside that would threaten to divide the church. And he charged the church to stand united against opposition and persecution that would come from outside the church because the church held true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But family, there will always be threats to our gospel unity from outside, always. But the greatest threat, the greatest threat to our unity and to the unity of the church comes not from out there. It will come from in here. Because the greatest threat to unity comes not from out there. It comes from our own pride. Pride causes comparison and prideful comparison causes division. And that is what Paul is warning the church in Philippi and the church on Chestnut Street against in this next section of Philippians. So to help you and I avoid making or continuing a horrible mistake, what word does the Lord have for us today? And asking that, let's pray together. Fathers, we open your word. Speak. Your people have gathered. And help your people to listen. And more than listen, help us to hear. And more than hearing, help us to respond. Help us to obey. Help us, Lord. And be glorified in your people. Be glorified through your people. Be glorified now and forevermore. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, picking up where we last left off. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's page 1165. So synchronize your Bible apps or open your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, and starting in verse 1, Paul writes, So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. 
You might notice this passage begins with a connecting word. It says, so. So, in other words, what is here connects with what came before. And like we just said, what came before was Paul calling the church in Philippi to stand united, stand united against the forces from outside that were going to divide the church. And he says, just like you're going to stand united there, you need to stand united against the forces that will come from inside the church to divide it. In fact, Paul in today's passage He makes an argument, a really profound case that the reality of our unity, my unity and your unity with Christ makes our church unity a necessity. He he says, if you are united with Christ, then church unity is not kind of an optional addition that you can select. Church unity is a logical necessity. It's a natural consequence of the fact that we are united with Christ. It's that which is so important for which we should fight for it. We should defend it. We should sacrifice for it. You see, Paul begins his argument here, and he's making an if-then statement. You'll notice four if clauses in the first portion. He uses four if statements, not because he's somehow doubtful about the truth of any of them. He's provoking the church in Philippi and the church on Chestnut Street to consider our own personal experience of these realities. How have you lived and experienced these four things that Paul talks about. Notice he first writes, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. He says, if there's any encouragement. In other words, remember, church, remember the encouragement that you've received from being united with Christ. Because being united with Christ is the very central reality of our experience. By faith, you and I have been united with Christ. Now, now today, we often use the language of invite Jesus into your heart. We use that and we hear that all the time. But church, that's nowhere found in the scripture. And I've shared before this favorite quote from Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention. He says, for too long, we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into your life. Jesus doesn't want to be in your life. Your life's a wreck. Jesus calls you into his life. Jesus calls you into his life. Instead of inviting Jesus into your life by faith, we're invited into his life. We are in Christ. In the 13 letters that we have from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, of the 13 letters, Paul uses this phrase, in Christ or in him, 164 times. This is the central reality of what it means to be a Christian. We are in Christ. Friends, the gospel, the good news is that Jesus didn't come just to inhabit the wreck of our lives. He came to give us his life. We are invited into the life of Christ. This is good news because it means that the sinful mess of your old life, it can be forgiven and shed. Jesus offers you abundant life in exchange for your dying life. So, friends, if you are here and you have not, then today, today's the day by faith to respond to this good news, to be by faith united in Christ, because by because of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we find the old can be gone. The new can come forgiveness and freedom from what has been and then life, purpose and peace in Christ now and forevermore. And Paul rhetorically asked the church in Philippi. So, hey, is that encouraging to you? Does that encourage you at all that you're united in Christ? Well, of course it does. This is the good news. This is the center of it all. Of course, this is encouraging. Of course, it's our only hope. It's our only peace. And Paul says, so remember that. 
remember and be shaped by that experience. Be shaped by the reality of the fact that you are in Christ. And secondly, if you're in Christ and if there's any comfort from Christ's love, he writes. If there's any comfort from Christ's love, God loves you. God loves you. Is that a comforting thought? Is that a comforting knowledge? What about the absolute certainty of that love? Because of Jesus Christ, Paul emphatically declares in Romans 8, For I am sure, I am certain, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, is that comforting? That God loves you so much and nothing can separate you. And Paul says, if you've experienced the comfort of his love, if you know it intellectually and experientially that it's true, you've got to respond to that. So if you're in Christ, if you've experienced the comfort of his love, and thirdly, he writes, if there's any participation or common sharing in the Spirit. So do you share in the Holy Spirit now? Has the Spirit by faith drawn you into Christ, into the very life of God, and into His church, into His people? Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Paul says, yes, yes, you've experienced the spirit. It's the spirit who drew you into Christ. It's the spirit who made you part of the church. You share in one spirit. You're in Christ. You receive comfort from his love. You share in one spirit. Remember that. And if that's all true, then what? But he's got one more if. If you're in Christ, if you've experienced the comfort of his love, if there's any participation in the spirit, and fourthly, if there's any affection and sympathy, he says. And friends, have you? Have you experienced the affection and compassion of Christ in your life? Have you experienced the tender mercies of his grace that has forgiven you? Have you experienced the kindness that has led you to repentance? Just a few verses earlier, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in chapter 1, verse 8, I yearn with you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I know Christ is affectionate because I've experienced it, and now the affection that he has for you lives in me. And I feel it burning in my chest. It's overflowing from me. So if you're in Christ, if you've experienced the comfort of his love, if there's any participation in his spirit, and if you know his affection and sympathy, then what? If then, if all these things are true, which you know they're true church in Philippi, you know they're true church on Chestnut Street. If these things are true and you know they're true, you've experienced them as true. If these are true, then what? This must follow. Paul says, if you are, then, look at verse 2. If these things are true, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one spirit. He has four things here again. Same mind, same love, same spirit, same purpose. Same mind, same love, same spirit, same purpose. He says, if you're united with Christ, which you know you are, you've experienced it. And if you've experienced the reality of being united with Christ, then the logical necessity, the natural outflow, then what comes is unity. 
You're of one mind, of one spirit, of one love, of one purpose. Paul is not calling us to uniformity, but he's calling us to unity. We should note here that he's not calling us to sameness of thought, but he is calling us to sameness of mind. We are not uniform, but we are united. We are a diverse people, but yet we have unity. And how do we maintain unity as a diverse people? As a people of different opinions, as a people of different backgrounds, as a people of different experiences, how do we maintain unity? Paul explains in verses 3 and 4. Look there. Do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And friends, the key word there is humility. Humility. Now, some people wrongly think that humility means thinking poorly of yourself. Oh, I'm such a... Beating yourself up, wallowing in your utter unworthiness. But the fact is, humility is not about you at all. Humility is not about you. C.S. Lewis defined it best. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is ultimately not about you. It's about a chosen disposition you have towards other people. As Paul writes here, selfish ambition and vain conceit. What are those? That's an elevation of me. Pride is about me. It's about my interests. It's about my ambitions. It's about my understandings. It's about my opinions. And church, pride divides us. In a wonderful little book he wrote titled Humility, Pastor C.J. Mahaney writes, Pride also undermines unity and can ultimately divide a church. Show me a church where there's division, where there's quarreling. I'll show you a church where there's pride. Because pride, selfish ambition and vain conceit divides us, but its opposite, humility, unites us. It unites us. You see, it's about unity, not uniformity. Because, you know, the fact is, you don't actually need humility with people that you agree with. You don't need humility with people who think like you. You don't need humility with people who are like you. You need humility with people who differ from you. And we differ from one another. We're diverse people, but yet we're called to be united. And how can we be united? Through humility. Humility is needed when we approach those who are different from us, who understand things differently, who come to different conclusions, who live and choose differently. Humility allows persons who are not uniform of life and opinion to be united and remain united in mind, in love, in spirit and purpose, just like Paul writes. Humility unites. Pride divides. And in this same little book on humility, Mahaney correctly identifies the real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart. It's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. And that's the question for you and for me. Because, friends, if there is to be unity amongst us, Each one of us needs to address the pride in his or her own heart. Not if there's pride, because there is, but where is their pride? And how is it currently being expressed in your life? Where and how are you currently making a horrible mistake? 
And right here, I'm going to stop you all and say, cut it out. Because you've already started thinking, I'm so glad so-and-so is here to hear this sermon because he needs to hear it. Uh Uh-huh. You're thinking, I sure hope that she downloads and listens to this later on this week. And I know that you're thinking that because as I prepared the sermon, that's exactly what happened to me. I was preparing the sermon. I was thinking, she needs to hear this. I hope he's there. Maybe they'll download and listen to it. And I didn't like the sermon because I found pride was immediately creeping in, blinding and distracting me to my own need by making me think about everybody else around me. So church, this is not about them. It's about you. And where is the pride that God right now wants to work on in your own heart and in your own life? And maybe you'll come to hate this sermon as much as I did writing it. So this is not a time for you to critique or gain ammunition against others. It's an opportunity for you and me before the Lord to invite him to come and to deal with our own pride. And the question is, will we let him? Now, to help you uh, and to maybe help identify where and how pride might be causing you to make a horrible mistake in your own life, I'm going to talk a little bit about myself because I speak as someone really proud of his great experience with pride. You know, in all seriousness, I remember I started here as associate pastor of Family News 17 years ago, and my attitude when I came here was, I'm going to show you poor people how to do youth ministry. And as a result, over the years, I know I've had to apologize to many people because of things I said, decisions I made, but most of all, for a prideful failure to listen and to seek understanding time and time again. And then for five years, while I was the associate pastor, I know I watched the senior pastor and the leadership make decisions, and I regularly thought, why would he do that? How could they decide that way? The answer is so obvious. It's simple. And foolishly, I sometimes even voiced those opinions, and they didn't fire me, surprisingly. Because then 12 years ago, I became the senior pastor, and I quickly discovered that I'm not as brilliant as I thought I was. And I quickly discovered that situations are nowhere near as simple as they appeared on the outside. There was so much I didn't understand. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And pride makes us foolish. Humility recognizes that understanding must always come first. Humility makes us understand that under, makes us understand, makes us know that understanding must come first. You know, I think of the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, which says, O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be understood as to understand. So whether it's in church relationships or your work relationships or your friendships or your marriage, humility seeks first to understand. Pride speaks first so its opinion might be aired and understood. You see, pride says, I know the whole story, I understand what's going on, or I've heard enough of the story. Pride is the Monday morning quarterback that says, I could have done better. Pride says, I never would have decided that way or done that. What kind of a person does that? Pride assumes and airs an opinion. Humility seeks to understand and recognizes there's almost always more to any story. You know, for example, maybe I'm the only one who does this. But, you know, when I'm out driving and the person in front of me makes a bad move or stop short or makes a maneuver that's a little too close, I'm quick to say, oh, what a bad driver. Moron. Remember, I'm from Massachusetts. I struggle with these things. <laughs> but do I ever do those same things? Do I ever make a bad decision when I'm driving? 
Do I ever stop short or do I ever maneuver too close? Well, yeah, I do. Is it because I'm a bad driver? Well, no. Of course not. (laughs) Well, then why do I do it? Well, it's complicated. The sun blinded me. I'm unfamiliar with this neighborhood. The GPS on my phone lagged. That other driver acted unexpectedly. You see, when somebody else makes a bad move driving, it's because they're a bad driver. But when I make a bad move driving, well, it's, it's complicated. It's not that I'm a bad driver. There's extenuating circumstances. Maybe some of you might be guilty of operating this way on the road. The problem is we're also guilty of operating this way in our lives. You know, someone lies to you and you get mad. And what do you do? She's such a liar. Well, have you ever lied? Well, of course you have. Are you a liar? No, I'm not. Well, then why did you lie? Well, it's complicated. You see, the person who lied to you is one-dimensional. She's a liar. But you, when you lie, there are extenuating circumstances. You're three-dimensional. You see, the person that makes a bad maneuver when driving, they're one-dimensional. You're a bad driver. But when you do the exact same thing, there are extenuating circumstances. You're three-dimensional. So why do they get to be one-dimensional while we get to be three-dimensional? Maybe the truth of the matter is that we're all three-dimensional. And that we don't know someone else's whole story. We don't know what the person has gone through or is going through. We don't know their background. We don't know what kind of day they just had. We don't know how far they've come. We don't know how bad their life was. And so how much progress they've made since last week, since last month, since last year. Maybe we need the humility to say we don't have the entire story. You know, Pastor Oswald Chambers wrote, There is always one fact more in every life of which we know nothing. Therefore, Jesus says, judge not. Or you've probably heard the same sentiment. It's very popular today. Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. You see, we assume a lot. And we quickly label and we go, look, they did this, therefore they're that. But when I do those things, well, there's there's circumstances you have to understand. Friends, humility seeks to understand. Humility seeks to understand. Now, to be clear, humility in the fact that there's always more to the story doesn't mean that we should justify or rationalize away somebody else's sin. Humility will help me to better understand why she might struggle with this particular sin so I can be more compassionate. Humility will help me approach the sin not with pride that says, well, I could never do that, but will help me approach with the humility to say, there go I, but the grace of God. But sin must still be called sin. It still needs to be confronted and repented of. Because, church, it's not humility. It's not humility for a doctor to say, well, I didn't want to tell you that I saw in your body some stage four cancer because it isn't nice news. Or I didn't feel like I had the right to tell you because I have also in the past had cancer. Or if the cancer was really serious, you'd probably be aware of it without me having to tell you. Or who am I to recommend a treatment plan? There are so many other doctors better than me. Or or you probably know what's best for your needs. Friends, that's not humility. That's malpractice. And how often do we commit spiritual malpractice with one another under the guise of humility? We'll allow a malignancy to continue to grow in someone's life, but we don't say anything. We pretend nothing's wrong. We don't talk to them, and we do it under the guise of false humility. But true humility continues to call sin, sin, but it humbly invites another person to health. It's why James writes in James chapter 5, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see, humility still identifies and confronts sin, but it's a question of how sin is confronted and to what end. False humility simply ignores the cancer. Humility knows that it may not yet have the whole story, but humbly asks questions, speaks the truth about what it perceives, all with the hope that the other person might be brought towards health. So humility causes us not to condemn, but also not to minimize or rationalize. Humility seeks understanding because humility seeks truth. And so many issues, so many issues that would divide us could be quickly resolved if I just might humble myself before that other person and say, I don't understand. Can you explain? But we don't do it. You see, we don't do it because that action right there requires humility. It's risky because in doing that, you might end up the one humbled. You might discover you were wrong in your own understanding of this other person. You might be humbled to discover that what you thought you were so right about, you weren't. You might be humbled because we all sinfully relish that feeling of being superior to others. I am the prettiest girl in the congregation. I'm the most gracious person. I'm the most righteous and concerned about sin. I'm the most knowledgeable. Well, at least, you know, prettier, more gracious, more concerned, more knowledgeable than him, than her, or than them. But when we approach that other person or persons, we risk being humbled because we might find out we're not as superior as we want to think we are. That they're actually just as gracious. That they seem just as concerned about righteousness that they really are far more knowledgeable than we realized and that I'm not as superior as pride has swelled me up to believe. So to approach another person to understand is to risk yourself being humbled. Pride feels good. It feels so good. They're so bad or they were so bad to me. It means I'm so innocent or I'm so superior so I can lick my wounds or I can relish my superiority. But if I risk understanding, I might find out that those with whom I disagree are actually three-dimensional, not just one-dimensional. And they're not as bad as all the things I've labeled them to be. I might find that I misunderstood some of what happened. I might reveal that my own actions were not as justified as I thought. And then it comes the hurt that I so desperately want to avoid. Because I'm going to have to humble myself and apologize. I'm going to have to humble myself and admit that where I was wrong. I'm going to have to humble myself and confess that I'm not as superior as I thought. And church, that's why we struggle to do this. Because humility hurts. Humility hurts. But the question is, is our unity worth hurting for? False humility says, who am I to speak about them? The danger is, Instead, you end up just speaking about them. Because you see, it's easy to speak about another person. It's called gossip. And gossip is safe because we don't risk being humbled. In fact, rather than bringing us closer to truth or understanding, gossip just reinforces our biases and our misunderstandings. Rather than promoting unity, gossip causes division. But if we speak to someone, we risk being humbled. Humbled to discover we didn't understand. We're not superior. They are just as concerned about those things on which we're concerned. Church gossip is safe. It doesn't hurt us. But it hurts the church because it's divisive. 
And gossip just reinforces my own prideful biases and my own assumptions. But humbly speaking to someone can bring healing and unity. Pride divides, but we continue in it because humility hurts so much. Church, humility is going to cost you something. Striving against division and towards unity takes work. It takes sacrifice. It takes commitment. This last week, I gathered, as I do every month, with a group of other pastors. And as we do, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians together. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is the very passage that we were looking at last week. Paul writes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness lead us to patiently bear with one another in love. And such humility maintains and protects our unity. And humility maintains and protects our peace. But church, that kind of humility, it hurts. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost me. And the question is, are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to hurt for the sake of our unity. And as we pastors talked about this passage around the table, we recognize that despite the nurturing of an attitude of humility, despite all of our best efforts to understand, there still are going to be issues on which we disagree. There are still going to be times in which we're never going to see eye to eye. But we agree the scripture treats our unity so highly that we always need to ask this question. Is this worth dividing over? Since our unity is in Christ, that means our unity is eternally important. It would be a horrible mistake to divide over that which is not eternally important. It would be a horrible mistake to sacrifice the eternally important and scripturally commanded unity for temporal issues. Gospel truth, unrepentant sin, yes, those are eternal issues. But opinion preference, differing perspectives on non-eternal issues. These are temporal. They're passing and they're not worth dividing over. They're worth bearing with, bearing with in humility and in gentleness. So church, the call, the call that Paul makes in these passages is to humble ourselves before God and humble ourselves before one another, to seek understanding, to confess and identify pride to protect our unity. And the question is not how do they need to do it? Not how does the person in the pew next to you need to do it? How do you need to do it? How and where is pride in your life? Because the gospel, church, the good news, which is in the next section of Philippians that we're going to study next week, is that we have everything we need to live in unity and humility because of Jesus Christ. Not just because of his example, which this next week I'm so excited for, because this is a beautiful, beautiful hymn to Christ and to what he's done. We have the beautiful, not only example of Christ, but Paul's reminding us, you don't just have his example, you have Christ himself. So unity is very possible. In fact, not just possible, it's a necessity. As we sang this morning, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit and faith and unity. 
where the bonds of peace, of acceptance and love are the fruits of his presence here among us. Unity is the fruit. It's the consequence. If then, if you're in Christ, if Christ is amongst you, then church unity is not optional. It's necessity. It's the fruit. It's the consequence. The fruits of Christ's presence amongst us is unity. That's what Paul is arguing here. And so it is, church, that we must do everything in our power to maintain and to defend that unity, no matter how much it hurts our pride, no matter how much we must humble ourselves. It must be, as we prayed this morning in song, as Jesus prayed for us from John 17, make us one, make us one undivided body. Make us one for the sake of your name, Lord. Make us one. Are you willing to pray that? Are you willing to live that? Are you willing to hurt for that? Where's the pride in your heart and in your life? How does Christ want to humble you? And how does he want to answer this prayer through you to make us one? Because you and I will stand before Jesus someday. And Lord forbid it that any of us should hear him say, that was not graciousness, righteousness, or knowledge. What you were doing there, that was just a horrible mistake. Let's pray. Father, you've already heard our prayer. Make us one. Make us one. Make us one undivided body that the, that the world might know that you are amongst us. Father, humble us. Humble us before you and before one another. And may you receive the glory and the honor and the praise now and forevermore. Amen.